Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hi there. I want to talk to you about Doug. No, you're okay. This one, real fucking up. Monkey, this is not now. This is bowling. There are rules. Hey, Walter, come on. Oh, you're from the neighborhood. You're right. Well, that's not entirely true. I came to see you, but where are the paperweights? That's what I want to see now. It's just torture and murder. No platinum characters. Very, very realistic. I think it's what's next. Am I hallucinating here? Just what in the hell do you think you're doing? Learn about Cuba. Toast to toast, my friends, to our health and cheer and happiness. Otto, let the ritual begin. Hello and welcome to the Cult Film Companion Podcast. The home of all movies that are off, under or ahead of the cinematic radar. Or maybe it's a movie that you need to put on your cinematic radar. My name is Chris. I am your host. Joined, as always, with my co-host, Andrew. Good evening, sir. How are you? I'm, I'm managing tonight. Thank you for asking. Of course. And are you ready for a trip back to 80s horror, where one of the aspects that I love about 80s horror is the practical effects and... Um, those are on full display here. We are talking about The Howling from 1981, directed by Joe Dante. It was based on a book by Gary Brandner. The screenplay is credited to John Sayles and Terrence H. Winkless. It was produced by Michael Fennell and Jack Conrad. The cinematography was done by John Hora. It was edited by Mark Goldplatt and Joe Dante. The music is by Pino Donaggio, who we spoke about recently on the Blowout podcast. It stars Dee Wallace as Karen White, a TV news reporter who starts receiving phone calls from a serial killer that seems to be terrorizing the city. And she goes out and meets the serial killer. And in the process of after meeting him, he is killed by the police and she's dealing with some stress some PTSD and her uh, doctor recommends a retreat to a colony for people um, dealing with those sorts of situations for her and in, in a way to to recover from this traumatic incident it also stars real-life husband Christopher Stone as her in movie husband Bill Neal Patrick McNee portrays Dr. George Wagner, her psychiatrist. Robert Picardo portrays Eddie Quist, the aforementioned serial killer who turns out to be a werewolf. Dennis Dugan portrays Chris Halloran, a friend of uh, Karen White and Bill Neal's. And portraying his girlfriend is Belinda Belaski, who um, is credited in the movie as the character Terry Fisher. It also features such character actors as John Carradine, a member of the colony. My favorite name of all time, Slim Pickens, uh, portrays the sheriff who helps to investigate uh, the circumstances regarding the colony. And we'll get into the special effects a little bit later. Rob Bottin, once we we talk about the special effects in the movie, I'll I'll talk about a bit about him, created the practical effects for the movie. 
Stop motion animation, particularly in the werewolf sex scene, was done by David W. Allen. This movie was shot in about 28 days for a budget of $1.5 million. The box office total for the movie was $17.9 million. This was one of three mainstream Hollywood werewolf movies in the year 1981. After a drought of werewolf movies... All of a sudden, in the early 80s, werewolves just became a thing, particularly in 1981. This was the same year that An American Werewolf in London came out, and also the same year as Wolfen. Initial thoughts on The Howling, Andrew? Well, first of all, nothing really happens by chance. There was, I, I'm, I'm sure there was a reason that Hollywood jumped on the werewolf bandwagon in the early 80s. I'm not really sure what that reason is. But in a movie like The Howling, they actually talk about secret societies. So it makes me wonder if uh, it was part of an idea to introduce this type of primal uh, behavior to moviegoers starting in the 80s decade. Uh, a lot of this movie reminded me of Rosemary's Baby which was actually reported that Polanski made a deal with the powers that be to introduce the occult into mainstream cinema, mainstream cinema with Rosemary's Baby in the 60s. Uh, and indeed, it did. All of a sudden, the occult started uh, trickling into mainstream culture by the late 60s and into the 70s. So off the top of my head, I do think that there may have been a reason for all of these werewolf movies all of a sudden. Uh, the other one was Wolfen, and the other one is American Werewolf in London. Okay, got it. I've seen both of those movies. I had seen The Howling before, but I didn't remember it. So I just saw it now, and I can talk about it fresh. Um, that's, yeah, I'm going to wrap that little statement up right now. So I think it... Sure. I think what you mentioned is very relevant to this particular movie because there's a great deal of talk about repression and also a lot of talk about how the werewolf is the id the psychological id unleashed if there was no restraints if there was no repression these people were able to shapeshift as it they mentioned in the movie it is very interesting the the original book the howling is a much darker, a very gritty novel from what I've heard from the actual author himself. I have not read the actual novel, but what I did was I listened to... There's actually a full commentary from the author on this movie, and it's very interesting to hear because his, his book is very, very different than what the movie is is his book was it was it was very dark there there are some there are some scenes that were omitted from the book I, I i think for good reason there's some very dark material in the actual novel but he, his approach to writing that he spoke about was kind of throwing aside some of the lore of uh werewolves are uh in his book which is different from the movie these people turn into werewolves every single night. And the common lore is that uh, werewolves only turn into, I mean, people only turn into werewolves on a full moon. So he threw that aside. And in the movie, it's 
implied and hinted at that these people can turn into werewolves pretty much any time they want. The particular, a lot of the lore is um, is shot down in a very interesting scene in a bookstore where the owner of the bookstore kind of, he, he refers to it as Hollywood nonsense, you know. But he does, he does say that the only way to actually kill a werewolf is with a silver bullet or with fire. And he kind of refers to them as cockroaches. You know, the, the, they can regenerate. They might appear to be dead, but they could come back. So it's, a, it's an interesting take on werewolves. So originally the script was much more pretty much followed the book beat for beat and included a lot of more the darker material and that was the screenplay originally done by Jack Conrad who actually owned the rights to the howling and uh, was given a producer's credit but then the screenplay was uh, rewritten by Terrence H. Winkless and then when it was offered to Joe Dante he brought on John Sales to rewrite the script and it's very interesting because off the back of the cult Roger Corman movie Piranha which uh, Steven Spielberg himself has dubbed the best Jaws ripoff that he's ever seen. Joe Dante was in high demand and he was actually before the howling he was working with Universal on Jaws 3. And can you guess the incredible title working title of Jaws 3? No. It was called Jaws 3 People 0. <laughs> That is just so sick. <laughs> I kind of wish. I I kind of wish that we got that movie. Yeah, I know. Me too. And I saw I saw Jaws. Jaws three turned into Jaws three D. I remember going and seeing it in three D in the movie theater. And it's basically a big ad for SeaWorld. A big what? Ad for SeaWorld? Ad for ad. Oh yeah. Yeah. Well, I guess so. What for the whole three D propaganda? <laughs> movement it's just kind of like come see you know come to sea world you know you saw the jaws 3d you know you like these underwater creatures but anyway so that was falling apart so he was offered the howling and he read the script and he hated it it was and he wasn't familiar with the book didn't like the book didn't like the screenplay so he brought in john sales who worked on piranha with him to rewrite it and kind of Add some levity, add some humor, take out the darker elements. Because, as Joe Dante describes, he he likes fantasy horror. He he likes horror that is is dreamlike. And he also mentioned that if you don't add some intentional, well, this is his philosophy. If you don't add some intentional humor, you're you're running the risk of a lot of unintentional humor in your movie if you give people some laughs some breaks here and there you know they're more likely to buy into some of the more fantastical elements and not make a joke of that because there's already jokes in there all right this is interesting and let me let me let me let me riff on this a little bit please go ahead uh, yeah yeah so he, he does do that uh and it's funny we were talking about humor uh, in Dune, and lack thereof, and David Lynch's Dune, David Lynch can get away with, well, <laughs> if people laugh at David Lynch, like, he always has the last laugh in the end, but uh, apparently this new Dune has some humor in it that is 
helpful and diffuses the drama. But let's let's talk about let's talk about Howling. Um, so when I'm watching this movie, I think very much to myself: here is a director with a vision that he has basically storyboarded to death. Like uh, it's all planned out from beginning to end, every little beat and sequence. And it reminded me of Blowout um, and of De Palma, the way that he works and the way that he uh, is very much a visionary and will set up sequences that will go on for quite quite a while, sometimes like up to 20 minutes. And I did not know that music for The Howling was done by the same guy who did Blowout. So there's the De Palma connection. That's the Palma connection. That's why that was going through my head, a lot of it. I was very caught up in the music of it. Uh, the music has its own very special role in the movie, The Howling. Um, and the way that it's shot is beautiful as well. It's, it's, it's beautiful to look at, especially the daytime sequences. The lighting, uh, the way that they capture the sun is, is gorgeous. And it is a lot very much like a fantasy film uh, that Spielberg was making popular in the, in the early 80s. I don't know... I don't know how much of a Mark Spiel... Well, he had Close Encounters, but E.T. hadn't come out yet, and that that movie kind of... Um, is. I don't want to say it's a lot like The Howling, um, and I haven't seen E.T. for a long time, but the fantastical element in movies that, that was to come is being explored here in The Howling uh, with Joe Dante's direction and his cinematographer... And the screenwriters, I could tell, were very much on board with his vision. And I'm sure it was storyboarded to death. So that's my little riff. No, it absolutely was. And, um, you know, Joe Tante, you might not know the name, but I guarantee you you've seen at least one of his movies, a little movie called Gremlins, which, you know, put him on the map after The Howling. So it's interesting, too, because you, you bring up E.T., which also stars D. Wallace. That's right. It's it's unfortunate when sometimes when people bring up uh, the, the term sc- scream queens in reference to horror movies. Very often you hear Jamie Lee Curtis, but not so often do you hear D. Wallace, and she's kind of made a career off of sci-fi and horror movies. You know, not only The Howling, E.T. Her and her husband also starred in the um, Cujo. Cujo, correct. The Stephen King adaptation. Up until you know a couple of years ago, she was in a very good Christmas horror movie called Red Christmas. So she's still she's still going at it. Uh, unfortunately, her. I'm sorry. No, she is. I looked her up on IMDb. She is still working. Unfortunately, her husband is what? He's passed away. Oh, that's too bad. Okay. Let's talk, let's talk a minute about him. So, his name is Christopher Stone? Correct. correct? Yes. Now, now, as I'm watching The Howling, I thought Christopher Stone was the same guy from Halloween 3, Season of the Witch, which we'll be covering later this month. Tom Atkinson. He's not. No, he, he, he looks like Tom Atkinson. Does. Yes, he does. I was thinking the same thing. If if he had a mustache, if he had a mustache in this movie, he would be Tom Atkinson. Yeah, I think it's Tom Atkins, by the way. Oh, yeah, I think you're right. I think you're right. Uh, yeah, yeah. Yo, and he's he's really good. He's really. I mean, this is this is a real like 
man's man dilf material uh, actor that you don't see much anymore. Uh, it's kind of old style Hollywood actually, but he's very grounding in his presence and his masculinity and in his uh, charisma. Um, and he he's a good he's a good centerpiece for the film for the Howling. And he's, you know, it's it's enjoyable to watch him actually turn into a beast. Also, and they they definitely sex it up, and uh, and I was feeling it along with the woman that he has sex with. What's her name? And this is it, Marsha, or is that the actress's name? I took notes. I didn't. Um, the one who is basically takes over the cult. The the character's name is Marsha. Yes. Okay, Marsha. So in that scene, that was very that was very effective. And you said that there was actually there was actual like animation done by the end of that sequence, wasn't there? Yeah. Yes, there was stop stop motion animation. Yes. Okay. Okay. Um, so that's the deal with him. Uh, he's he's good. I also thought for the whole movie that the actress playing Terry from Chris and Terry was PJ Souls. And she indeed was not PJ Souls. She looks like her, and she's very familiar to me. She's done a lot of TV, so maybe I saw her on TV a lot back in the eighties. But she's not PJ Souls, just the way that Christopher Stone is not Tom Atkins. No, <laughs> uh, <laughs> I'm so distracted by all these actors who look like other actors. Uh, yeah. And you got you you got a really bonkers performance from John Carradine as this like wacko old guy at the the colony. Yeah. Now I think I'm pretty sure John Carradine played uh, Reverend uh, Casey in Grapes of Wrath, who I played on stage because I remember watching Grapes of Wrath before I auditioned for for it, and he's he plays the character Jim Casey that I that I ended up playing who is a reverend who's a priest who goes out into the woods and lives like Henry David Thoreau and then comes back into society. And he's very, he was very good in that. So th- it is, it's the same guy. So, and he was very good in this too. Um, reminding me of Donald Sutherland in uh, Day of the Locust, how he has moments where he wants to quote, tear it all down, unquote. That's what Sutherland says in Day of the Locust. But he has that scene, scene in the bonfire, Carradine does in The Howling, where he's just like, it just goes on and on and on. <laughs> yeah. Very so I'm just going to bring up, yes, yeah, so a couple a couple notes about the original novel and the movie. And like I said, I, I did not read the original uh, Howling. Uh, I, I, I want to now, after watching the movie and listening to Gary. I do as well. Interested in what you have to say about the book and the original screenplay, which was more faithful to the book. Um, so Gary Brandner, the author of the book, spoke about how. So in the movie, Marsha, who takes over the cult, is seen in the is um in the very last scene of the movie, ordering a, a rare hamburger, and she actually dies in the book. She shot in the head with a silver bullet, and it was. Brandner's favorite character. He actually he wrote two sequels to the Howling, the original book. He wrote two other books, and the second book is Marsha's story. He actually brings her back from the dead to 
star in her own story. Also, a big change from the novel is that D. Wallace's character has a psychiatrist who plays an integral part in the movie. He's a minor character in the novel, and in fact, he is completely unaware of what is going of what is going on in the colony as opposed to in the as opposed to the movie where he's pretty much you know he's calling the shots of the colony and it's kind of interesting that it's the colony is kind of like it's like group therapy for werewolves in a way And they talk about, um, Joe Dante talks about like how in the 60s it was kind of like get in the 60s and 70s it was like get in touch with your inner self. And there's actually a very interesting scene in the movie where one of the characters is talking to Dee Wallace and she's talking about all the different therapies that she's tried. And she mentions like Scientology and primal screaming and she's she's saying, now you know, I'll try anything to, to try to be normal. So like the she, she says she says and she says I figure in about five years I'll be a normal human being right yep <laughs> or a normal person <laughs> I'm like girl yeah <laughs> so like you're already a human being honey go on so I think that like the original author talked about how there was before this there was kind of like two different types of werewolf movies there was the oh no I'm a werewolf what do I do now movies. And then there's the, there's a werewolf killing people in our town. Who is it? What do we do? Kind of movies. And he said, well, I'm going to do the, the opposite. And I'm going to make a movie where everyone is werewolves and an outsider comes into their community. Yeah. Wow. Wait, who says this? The, the author of the original book? Correct. Okay. So I just I, I think it's interesting that we get this kind of D. Wallace is kind of like D. Wallace and her husband are kind of like our our guides into this this secret like you said it's a secret society of werewolves and they're trying to the mountains yeah they're trying to inter, they they talk about and there's it's interesting because there's two opposing sides of views in this secret society which also kind of harkens back to Blowout, where you had a secret society, but then you had John Lithgow's character who wanted to go against that secret society. In The Howling, we have, like, the old school, we can we can coexist with humans, and then we have, like, the new school. No, they're our food, they're our prey, we are superior to them. And at the end, it kind of, like, they're kind of at odds with each other. It's, it's like the X-Men. It's like the, you know, the battle between um, the good, you know, the good, the good mutants and the bad mutants, quote unquote, where is it Magneto who wants to, you know, wipe out the human race? <laughs> yeah. The other, you know, then the other side says, no, we can be, we can coexist. Yeah. Interesting. So there's a yeah there's a lot of there's a lot of psychology going on. John Sales, who wrote the screenplay, was a, a a psych major, so he he kind of he wanted to do and he talked to Joe Dante and they said we, we kind of want to do a twist. We kind of want to make a a satire of these like I don't know like fix yourself kind of things. Like if there's something wrong with you, we can fix it. Kind of groups, you know. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. It, yeah, and it, it exposes what it, 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 
it makes us all right here we go this type of now i've i've been in therapy pretty much all my adult life okay i'm not in it now uh and i can say pretty confidently that if you do too much of this stuff if you do too much therapy this is a very controversial statement i'm about to make it can it can start unraveling you you can start going backwards you can by spending too much time dwelling on the parts of yourself that uh you that other people might consider weak um, for lack of a better word the more vulnerable aspects of yourself it makes you just that it makes you more vulnerable to life in general so in the context of the howling it's interesting that you do have this group of people that are doing this they're breaking down their psyches basically and in the context of this plot um the breaking down of the psyches basically basically just exposes the primal beast within you so you don't have the left brain is it the uh, yeah it's the left brain i think that's the creative you don't have as much of the left brain and they talk about this at the beginning of the howling as well you don't have as much of the left brain dominating your circumstances instead you've got the primal reptilian right brain that's taking over exactly yeah yeah and uh, it, there's a lot of talk about uh, repression and you know what happens if you just give in to every animal instinct that you want uh, yeah and that's right so let's but let's differentiate between rep- being the repressed and basically feeding the beast you know like you you have to acknowledge that you have a uh, primal instincts <laughs> basic instinct <laughs> primal <laughs> instincts but i mean that's what basic instinct is about as well primal instincts that are animal fueled um and acknowledging it and being able to manage it we it's not that we don't live in a repressive society in one way or another you know it it that's the nature of that beast but we don't necessarily have to uh, I, i i don't think we necessarily have to be repressed to acknowledge our beast side if we can manage it but if we feed it it's going to grow and so that's what they do in this movie they literally feed it and it keeps growing and growing within them well it's interesting because the psychiatrist when he's talking about repression he he's doing this on like a newscast he's doing this on a broadcast so he's putting this out into you know the general public the yes yeah. but be you know behind closed doors on this in this colony he, he's preaching something different yeah so yeah yeah is this a, yeah you don't know if this is the this is not the dynamic in the book because he is unaware in the book. Correct. Uh, he he's a very minor character. So this is a device that's being used in the movie. He's he's aware and he reminds me of the doctor is it Charles Grodin in the in Rosemary's Baby the doctor who's in on it as well her doctor. Uh, so this is this is kind of intrinsic in its cinematic adaptation. 
where he's playing both sides of the coin. He's almost like a Joseph Mengele, where he's got these signs. He's it, he's observing the colony as a bunch of his experiments almost that he can report on to the public at large. And he's what the hell is he doing? Is he trying to bridge a gap between the two? What is up with that? Wow. So that's never really addressed in the movie, and. I'm guessing it's probably not addressed in the book because, like I said, he's a minor character. So, but, but let me tell you something. He, if that's if that's the thought process, if that's the subtext of his of his uh, his character's usage in the movie, it wins out in the end. And he does talk about this in the beginning. And he wins out in the end, even though he's dead, because Dee Wallace basically turns into a werewolf in front of. Everybody in front, in front of, in front of every viewer in America. Yeah, we'll get to that. Uh, I have issues with that scene. Um, <laughs> I like that. <laughs> uh, 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 we'll discuss that later. But um, to, to stick with the doctor, uh, I think it's interesting because he says that he only invites special people to this colony. So I think he's and, she, and she's a celeb. She's a celebrity, and he knows she's a celebrity. That she's a newscaster. I wonder if he had ideas behind that. Oh, absolutely! It reminds me of Scientology recruiting John Travolta and Tom Cruise to be the face of Scientology. Sure. Um, he he knows this. He I, I think he his his grand scheme is like she's going to become the face of this colony because, like you said, she has an audience. She is well-known. She's famous, even though she downplays it. But everyone, it's funny because random people throughout the movie say, oh, you're famous. I remember you. Or, like, even the sheriff is like, oh, you're better looking than Walter Cronkite, which I guess that's a compliment. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, yes, she is. (laughs) I mean, you know, I'm not bragging on Cronkite's looks. Go on. I do want to say, though, she's wonderful to watch. Like, I like watching Dee Wallace in anything she does. I really, really find her natural and, and uh, very pretty. So not, not only did I, I only listened to part of the commentary with um, the author, but there was also another commentary which was featured Joe Dante, Dee Wallace, Christopher Stone, and Robert Picardo, who, um, played Eddie Quist. We haven't talked much about him. We'll talk about him in a a minute. But it has to be one of the most enjoyable commentaries that I... Like, I actually... Sometimes listening to a commentary track can be a chore. And they have... It it feels like a bunch of friends reminiscing about good memories. They talk about some of the filming of the movie that I also got through this commentary track. So... They had a very. They had a. They only had a one point five million dollar budget. So feels like a bigger, bigger budget. It really felt like a big budget movie to me when I was watching. Well, they talk about how, you know, Joe Dante got his start working for Roger Corman. What he what he talks about, what he learned from Corman is to make the most of your budget, and in many ways the financial limitations that were put on him kind of it made him be more creative about what he wanted to put on screen to your point about you know storyboarding like he you know he had the whole movie he's the kind of director that has the whole movie kind of like in his head already 
and he just needs the right collaborators to help bring it to life. Speaking of Roger Corman, I might as well mention this now while we're talking about Roger Corman. Did you catch his cameo in the movie? No. So at the beginning of the movie, when D. Wallace goes into a uh, a phone booth to call Eddie, the serial killer, <laughs> the man waiting outside the phone booth who goes in after her is Roger Corman. And the joke is that if you watch the scene, the guy the guy does the little thing where he he sticks his finger in the, the, the coin return to see if there's any money there. And they said that's kind of a joke on Roger Corman because he's so, you know, frugal and stingy. They're like, yeah, he, he would he would he would look for a dime, you know, in a phone booth. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Okay, so this is a thing. This is a thing. How to make the most of your budget, like make it look really good uh, on, on maybe a shoestring. $1.5 million isn't a shoestring, but the howling looks like that you spent a lot more more money on it. Yeah, um, and that I think that just speaks to Joe Dante's talent. So some of the things, there's um, they, they shot a lot of the actual news studio footage was actually shot in, at a real news studio. Some of it was on a soundstage, but some of it was in an actual studio. They used actual coroner's footage when she's doing the initial in the opening of the movie. They're they're doing a newscast about the serial killer, and they have a footage of um, the coroner taking away a bloody body. That's actual. That's real footage of an actual <laughs> homicide victim. <laughs> yeah, and oh, don't tell me that. Sorry, and uh, this will lighten the mood, but the porno shop that she goes into is an actual porno oh, shop. I believe that. D. Wallace, she, it's funny because she doesn't really comment on it, but her, the, uh, Joe Dante does. He talks about how, like, she was, like, embarrassed. And I can get it. She, she comes across as very modest, very sweet, wholesome. And he talks about poor D. Wallace having to, to like, look around in, in, like, horror and terror because, like, it's one of those sleazy kind of porno shops that probably had some very odd fetish weird um you know sexual stuff going on and then she goes into a booth as instructed by eddie and the film that she watches was you know they they couldn't get a a porn movie so joe dante had to film this this porn scene and he filmed it in his own garage and he referred to it as extremely embarrassing. And he just said, it's it's not, he's like, I'm sure people watching it are thinking, oh, this must be fun to shoot a, he's like, this was not fun. This was just like, I had to do it for the sake of the movie. We needed to have it in there. Um, it's just awkward and embarrassing. And I could, and um, also the practical locations um, in the morgue scenes, that's uh, an actual morgue. And the morgue attendant it, uh, was played by the screenwriter, John Sales. They also did some techniques such as flipping a scene, especially in the, uh, the scene where they f first arrive at the colony and they're having like a big bonfire outside. Because they had such a limited space, 
he would flip shots so that the scenery would, you know, appear opposite of what you had previously seen in a scene. It gave the illusion that they had much more space than they actually did in the movie. So, again, that kind of just speaks to small budget, big ideas, what's I need to get my money's worth for it. And he just used a lot of inventive little techniques to get what he wanted to achieve the vision that he had for this movie. So the porn scene that he shot himself, is that the one with the one woman being tied to a bed and raped? Correct. Okay. He filmed that, that's not, that's not stock, he filmed that himself in his garage. As I alluded to earlier, one of the darker elements of the novel is that part of the trauma that the character of Karen White experiences in the novel, not in the movie, is that she is a attacked and raped by one of these uh, werewolves. I mean, she's not raped by a werewolf, but it's one of the, the people that are able to shapeshift. That scene is kind of like a little like nudge because that was one of the elements that Joe Dante did not want in the movie. He didn't want to have his main character dealing with something like that. There's enough trauma. But, that, but it does change everything. I mean, it really does. It changes everything. From the very, very beginning. Sure, yeah. It, you know, it does. Like, sh she's... It, it changes the, her whole journey. Right. It, 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 and I don't think that the tone of the howling kind of... That's too dark for this movie. You know, I think it probably works... If you're making a movie from the book, I mean, that's how it should be. I'm just saying... <laughs> I'm just saying that's taking out a very, very vital uh, element in her character and her journey and the plot of the whole story. Um, and you're, you know, this is, uh, I mean, this is what, you, this is what you're going to have to do if you're making a, a Hollywood mainstream movie. It's interesting. So you take the book and you take out an, a very vital element from the beginning of it. Um, and then make your own movie based on your own vision. And that is what Dante has done. Correct. I wonder how many conversations were held between studio executives and Joe Dante about all of this. I'm not sure. I know that the author himself speaks very highly of the movie, not so much of Joe. Yes. Uh, How much of Joe Dante, but of the movie? No, and I have a story about that. But um, he's the kind of author, and he talks about this, that he disconnects himself once he's sold the rights to something. Yeah, and he kind of has that, that aspect of when people come up to him and say, well, they ruined your book. And he said, no, they didn't ruin my book. My book is still there on the bookshelf. You're talking about a movie. He's So he's got a very practical idea. He realizes it's a business. He sells the rights. He's got a check coming. He's happy. Whatever they... But he does speak highly of the movie. So he doesn't have, like, a personal, like, in, okay. investment in this. Yeah. Um, yeah. What does he say of Joe Dante? So he's only met Joe Dante once. And the story is that the movie was shot. It was finished. And they were trying to, to find... Uh, distributors for it so they had um, they had like a screening for the movie 
and then Joe Dante came up afterwards and, and spoke. And basically what he said is, I took this trash book oh. and I made an incredible movie. Wow. And <laughs> wow. So this... so Considering that the main template of this story deals with sex and death, um, it's it's a pretty audacious remark for him to make because the book itself is going far deeper into that from the beginning of this of the plot. So I also have to comment and I don't I don't mean this as any disrespect to Mr. Gary Brandner, but listening to his commentary and I, I don't know how old he was when he quoted this commentary, he he comes across like a horny old man. Sometimes, yeah. yeah. Who's this again? Who is this? The the author of the novel. Okay. And and talking about the movie, uh, he makes like I don't even want to get into it, but he makes like he he's like drooling. You can like almost hear him through the audio commentary drooling over the actress who plays Marsha, the very sexual nymphomaniac. <laughs> You can almost you could like you could hear you can hear like audio drool coming off of it, like this guy. So like he very much wanted to have like sex was very prominent in this book, and that was kind of like giving in. She's she's the and she's the forefront of that whole sex and death theme. Um, she and she's the only she's the only full frontal nudity in the movie. Correct. Uh, yeah. So I mean. It's on. It's on. Sh it's on show here. It's on display. It's being exhibited. Um, this carnal, lustful, but murderous um, aesthetic, basically, right in front of your eyes. Yeah, with, it, that, with that with that sex at the bonfire scene. Basically, id unleashed. You know, yeah. id without any boundaries. And I'm sure he loved it. I'm sure the author. <laughs> I'm sure the author was like, okay, well, here we have it here, so I'm happy. <laughs> yes, he was very happy because he he comments um the only scene that is pretty much beat for beat from his book that is shown in the movie is you guessed it the werewolf sex scene was pretty much beat there for we yeah there we have it now we're getting down to it now so to it. so like yeah they, this is what we do. I love it. We had to deconstruct. Like we're deconstructing the house, right? <laughs> Big time. Um, hey, incidentally, so go ahead, sing your thought. But I want to know about Joe Dante in a minute. So sure. Remind me to mention it. Go ahead. No, I was just gonna say that. You know, he. They t just took the very broad strokes of the novel, the very kind of like general premise. And then John Sayles kind of ran with it to what Joe uh, Dante wanted to do. And well, this is I can tell. And this is the issue that I had with Blowout, even, where it was just this this fantastical, phasmagorical uh, vision from, coming from the director's mind. And it's, I'm not against that. I mean, you need to have a vision. But um I feel like I have to switch gears to get into that mode, um, or else I'm not going to uh, be able be able to accept the movie. 
And there's a lot of suspension of belief that happens in the plots of both movies where you have to just go with it to go along with this fantastical, uh, you know, reverie that you're experiencing. No, I yeah, com- completely. But, th- you know, there's suspension of disbelief is pretty much you, you, you need that to enjoy any movie. Yeah, no, you do. But I mean, Hitchcock, Hitchcock would sit with his writers, writer slash writer, writer would have one writer who would sit down with the one writer for hours and hours i mean like seriously like eight hours a day talking about plot points and say saying is this believable is this you know is this psychologically realistic um is this going going to happen after this they spent a lot of time with that and i don't feel that with a lot a lot, a lot of other movies, especially the two that we're doing now, like Howling and Blowout. Sure, but I, I mean, that's kind of like Joe Dante's thing. None of his movies are, with exception, are they're pretty fantastical. I mean, look at Gremlins and Gremlins Two. Um, he's not really interested in reality. He's interested in a fantasy, um, which I, I think is very. Right. Hitchcock was very much interested in psychology realism you know making it true to you know being realistic joe dante's kind of like the flip side he, he, everything's fantastical everything's exaggerated everything's crazy you know it, it's a heightened yeah. normality you, let's talk about what are kind of the 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 pinnacle scene of this movie which is kind of it kind of stops just to give us an on-screen transformation of a man into a werewolf. Like an American werewolf in London. Correct. Now, very interestingly, Rick Baker, who did the practical effects for American Werewolf in London, was initially working on The Howling. Now, due to probably some contractual things, obviously American Werewolf in London had a much bigger budget he kind of stepped back and allowed his protege Rob Botine to do all the the practical effects for the Howling. Now Rick Baker is also credited as a special effects consultant for the Howling while he was working on American Werewolf in London, which probably is something that would not happen today with studios being very kind of like protective and you know jealous of they wouldn't allow this this interplay to happen. But both Joe Dante and John Landis, the director of American Werewolf in London, wanted to do an on-screen transformation of a man into a werewolf. And we're shown both. Rick Baker won an Academy Award, the first in the category of special effects um, for American Werewolf in London. And the transformations are very similar, but also very different. And in American Werewolf in London, it's in a fully lit apartment that we see this full transformation. Now, due to budget limitations, I think the Howling went in the, the, the smarter direction regarding their budget and did... It's a very dark room, so you, you're able to hide some of your limitations there. And there's a lot of um, bladder effects. You kind of see, like, the oozing, and then you see, like, the bones breaking, and you see this expansion of, like, muscle and... And ballooning, ballooning of certain parts of the body 
Correct. It, like it's filled with, like it's a bladder, like it's a full bladder. Yes, they call it a bladder effect, but... Okay. Now, let me, let me ask, let me specify real quick. The Howling and American Werewolf in London were both competing for the first special effects Oscar at the same year? I don't think they were, con I, I would have to look that up. I just know Rick Baker won. I don't know if there was actually any other nominees. Okay. But I feel like the Howling might have come out a year or two before American Werewolf. I could be I could be wrong, but anyway, go on with what where you're going with this. So, uh, as mentioned uh, earlier, in 1981, three uh, three werewolf movies came out: uh, American Werewolf in London, The Howling, and uh, Wolfen. They all came out the same year. So they would have been competing at the same Oscar uh, ceremony. I would I would think so. I don't know for sure. It might be one of those things where they kind of like I it almost seemed like they created this category exclusively for the transformation scene. But Rob Bottin, Rick Baker has done special effects. Um he did was very popular doing special effects. We'll talk about him later cuz he was only a consultant on the Howling. But Rob Bottin has it's the same. It's basically the same school of special effects. Correct. That, that treated the transformations in both movies. Correct. Yes, because okay. Rob Bottin was twenty-one at the time, so he was oh, young. Wow. Yeah, he was young in the business, and he was a protege of Rick Baker. And uh, Joe Dante basically took a, a took a chance on him to do this the special effects, and the the bladder effects that you were talking about. Very often they used um, condoms. They would fill up condoms to balloon. <laughs> but to me, I, I think looking back on these effects, I mean, yes, they're a bit dated now. But for me personally, I'll take practical effects over shoddy CGI any day of the week. Exactly. Yes, I, I I agree. But you would be to put it in carnal terms. <laughs> so I'm gonna hit you with some um some facts. Let me know if you know any of this. So Rob Bottin not only worked uh, with uh, Joe Dante here in The Howling, he's worked with three of my f personal favorite directors. He worked with John Carpenter on The Fog and The Thing. He worked with Paul Verhoeven on RoboCop, Total Recall, and Basic Instinct. He won an Academy Award for his effects on Total Recall. He's also worked with David Fincher on Seven and Fight Club. Wow. Also, wow. He, he is in Star Wars as a member of the Cantina Band. Oh, my God. <laughs> so he's, he, you know, this the chance they took on, the, on this uh, rookie, so to speak, this, um, this youngin coming up in the business, it, it paid out great because I think the transformation scene I will say that I, I, I like the one in American Werewolf in London more uh, but I think for the budget and the experience level knowing now you know how young he was and how little experience he had he did an, an, an amazing job with what he had to work with it's really, it's really good those transformation scenes are really good and I'm, and I'm thinking the first time that you really see it is the arm that that um, that Terry cuts off. Right. Yes. Yeah, and so 
so you see that return back to its human form uh and it was very effective and and very frightening it really was like i really thought to myself wow what's it like you know you have this beast attacking you this wolf and then you like sever a limb and it turns human right that's and i think that's that's kind of an interesting you know like i said they threw away a lot of the werewolf lore and they they kind of talked but he talked about um one of my favorite characters is uh, Dick Miller, the, the bookstore owner. His scenes were shot in half a day. Um, he's also from the school of Roger Corman. Um, he's I was a- wondering, and he reminded me of someone else as well. He reminded me of, I think it's, I think the guy's name is Gavin from The Night Stalker, that vampire TV movie from the 70s. It's not him, though. It's the, this guy that you're talking about. He's in Roger Corman movies. Yes, and um, he was the actually. This will be a brief detour. He was the character actor that I was referring to that wrote the black exploitation movie TNT Jackson about the the. Uh, that's the guy. That's the guy. Dick Miller is the. Hell. Yeah, he's from the like, right. but he's one of those character actors. He's one of those. He's got one of those faces that you're just like. I've seen this guy, and he's never like the leading man. He's never the star of the movie. He's always playing, you know, that's what a character actor does. You know, he's kind of like a side character, a minor character, but he's he always gives a memorable performance, and I just love his, like, I love when the nuns walk into his bookstore, and he just, like, rolls his eyes, and he's like, oh, we get all kinds in here. And he just got this... You know, what are nuns doing there? They're looking at the Baphomet. They're looking at the Baphomet head. The nuns are looking at the Baphomet head. Uh, also, yeah. In the, so, also in in that bookstore, uh, as the nuns are walking in, to the to the right of the nuns is, if you see it, it's like it's actually a prop from the first Texas Chainsaw Massacre movie, and they just like threw it in there in the bookstore, and like it, it's so like it's weird in hindsight looking at the scene because it's like two nuns walk into a bookstore right next to like. First of all, that sounds like the beginning of a bad joke, and yeah. <laughs> and then like you've got this prop from the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. I didn't even notice the corpse. I mean, they're standing at they're standing in front of a huge Baphomet statue. Yeah. yeah so all I noticed was that there was there was actually a corpse in a chair too, huh? Yeah. Well, I don't know if it's a corpse, but it's a prop from the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. So, um. But I didn't notice it until I was doing the research for the movie, and I actually went back to rewatch the scene and be like, "Oh yeah, that's just like it's so it's so out of place." But it's like it's positioned in such a way that like you kind of wouldn't know to look for it unless you were looking for it. But it's just it's just one of those things. It's like a Joe Dante thing, and what he did is he had the screenwriter, uh, and I'm not going to go through all the names, but a lot of the characters in the movie are named after directors who had done werewolf movies. And that's just kind of like, it's an in joke for himself almost like it's the audience, the general audience is. Yeah. This is totally his trip. This whole movie is totally, totally, totally his trip. Yeah. For real. All right. Go on, go on, go on. Yes. So the transformation scene and, and they did something smart. They kind of took, 
they talked about how they started out to develop the effects. And initially they had like a full suit that an actor was wearing to portray the werewolf. And they said it looked too much like a bear. It, it just didn't look natural to have like a big wolf standing on its hind legs. So there's very, they, they show before the transformation scene, you only get kind of like glimpses here or there, maybe just a frame or two. You get a quick shot of the face or you get a quick shot of the, like the legs or the, the paws, the, the, just like when you think the movie is just like going to tease you with a werewolf. They, they, the movie like stops and it is, it's just like a huge, it's like a showcase for the effects for about, I would say probably about a minute and a half, maybe two minutes of just these effects of like this man transforming into a wolf and to apply the prosthetics to the body to the arm to the legs it took hours and hours to do and like that's that's that must be a painstaking process for not only the the makeup effects but the person having all these effects you know put onto them and unfortunately that's nowadays they just do it with cgi and you know like my my brain knows when I'm seeing something that's generated by a computer and to me personally I much rather see even if it does even if I know that it's fake I much rather see something well this is not going to make sense I know that it's not really a man turning into a wolf I want to see something that's actual like it's actually happening in front of the camera it's creative it, creativity behind it exactly human creativity at work that you're watching and there is a difference thank you yeah even even yeah no absolutely absolutely it's, it's it, it, i think it's indisputable i don't i don't really want to talk to someone who's like who's gonna say i prefer cgi like what what really really even go you know go filter your whole life through a computer i am interested in seeing what human beings can do together to create something in front of me like that's more interesting to me absolutely absolutely yeah absolutely and the scene and the transformation scene in american and werewolf in london is awesome like i remember that i remember that from seeing it on hbo when i was a kid uh it's a standout and it is and it's like it's at night but the apartment is completely lit and he's doing it there on the living room floor i think in front of uh, a girl in front of one of the characters uh, so you know relaying that back to the howling like I I was involved when the movie stops and just focuses on that transformation and it is a showcase and I'm fine with it being a showcase because they're doing it and they're doing they're doing stuff that is that I can't take my eyes away from it's like really is that all you know I could I could I could laugh and say, oh, well, that's all fake. But, I mean, there's too much work behind it, and you see it. You see all that work, and so you're going to pay attention. And it's, you know, and there's a gross factor to it as well where you can't take your eyes away from it like it's a car crash or something where you see it, you see it all kind of happening, unfolding in front of you. Oh, my God. To actually see that, to actually see someone turn into... A monster turn into another entity in front of you like that um so it is and i'm trying you know what i'm remembering hmm, i'm remembering wolfman i'm remembering when i first saw it and i think it was around the time of 
of The Howling. I think it was around 1981 on a small black and white TV up in uh, Maine. And I saw The Wolfman for the first time with Bela Lugosi. And I'm, I, I can still remember the transformation with that. And it was basically fading, fading into a different layer of wolf, <laughs> if that makes any sense. I, I think I think it was Lon Chaney. Do you know what I'm talking about? I have. I think it's Lon Chaney, not Bella Lugosi. Oh, you're so right. I'm so sorry. So, so, the, so right. it's, it's Boris Karloff, right? Boris Karloff did Frankenstein, was Frankenstein's monster. Um. Lon Chaney did The Phantom of the Opera and The Wolfman, and Bela Lugosi portrayed uh, Dracula. Thank you. All right. So, so, it's, so it's Lon Chaney. Yes. You know what I'm talking about? I do. Level after another of fading in with the fur, basically. Well, basically what it was was take a still photograph of his face, add a little bit of hair, Take another still photograph. Add some more hair. Another still photograph. Kind of like stop. It was. It was kind of like stop motion animation. And I think. But, but, but now wait a minute. Is it is they would add more hair on him, the actor, right? And then correct. Take another picture. Yes. Okay. They're not. They're not filling it in with pencil or. Something. No. 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 Okay. Okay. So that that's how they did the transformation, and I think something that the Howling, and actually even more so, an American Werewolf in London, is. These transformations look painful. Like in the original, where in the original Wolfman, like he just like turns into a wolf and like it, he seems fine. Like yeah. the expression on his face doesn't change. In these movies, these are, it looks like this hurts. <laughs> absolutely, it's agony. It's an ordeal. It is. It's like, and so like I think you get such a much more visceral response because you're like, oh yeah. Like I think you kind of glamorize in your head. Oh, that would be cool if I could turn into a wolf at night. But these movies are showing no. This shit's painful. <laughs> like this is not something. This is not something you want to happen. <laughs> right. It's not fun and glamorous. No. Yeah, it's not. It's not. Even turning into a vampire, there are a lot of connections in the howling between werewolves and vampires. I feel like. Uh, but even turning into a vampire is probably less agony than turning into a werewolf. You know. I always, I think like vampires in certain movies get romanticized. It seems like it's a, it's, it's also very sexual. You're, you're, you're sucking someone's blood from their neck usually. Right. Um, right. You got that sexual component. Uh, I in the werewolf in these movies, the sexual component is after like, not to be gross. You're fucking like animals, basically. You're fucking like two wild animals. Yeah. Right. Like that like that 9-inch nails song. Like I want to fuck you like an animal. Oh, yeah. Uh, I don't know it. Oh. Uh, so so yeah, I I I love the transformations cuz it looks painful. It looks like it hurts and like yeah. also you also you get this um kind of like mid transformation like the uh the guy Eddie the serial killer like towards the end of the movie like he's halfway from human to werewolf he's almost he it looks like he's like slowly he and they talk about um in the developing the characters how they were gonna have like a hierarchy of werewolves they were gonna have certain they called them alpha werewolves who could basically turn at will um 
And that idea is kind of utilized in the character of of Eddie, who towards the end of the movie is like half he's like halfway through his transformation. And he confronts D. Wallace, then he confronts um the character of Chris, who's um D. Wallace's friend who uh, who comes to help the uh, investigation and actually shows up with the silver bullets from the bookstore. As much as I loved the transformation and the special effects, I did not like the ending of the movie. It's not that I didn't like the ending. I think it ended very appropriately. I did not like D. Wallace's transformation. <laughs> Let's get into it. Very interesting way to end the movie. She basically goes on the newscast and gives this speech about pretty much like about um, secret societies and like how, how they are out there. And she kind of it's almost like she wants it's like a scared straight program. She's like, I'm going to and I'm going to show you exactly what this secret society is all about. And she transforms into a werewolf. Then she's promptly shot by Chris on live television. But there's a close up of her face as a werewolf. And I'm sorry. I'm, uh, you can hate me if you want. She looks like Chewbacca. <laughs> Don't say that to be mean. It's just that I, it just seemed like that the 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 makeup effect was off for this one scene. Like it just didn't work for me. She looked too much. She looked too much like a cuddly. It, she looked too. She looked like a friendly werewolf. It, it, she looks like what a children's show werewolf would be. That would help. Okay. Kids like learn the alphabet. She, it looked too friendly. That's like my only criticism of the makeup. Other than that, um. It's a care bear. It is. It's a little too friendly. And maybe that's what they were going for. But to me, it just kind of... But I did... Overall, I did like the way that this movie ended. I had not seen it in quite some time. And I... It all came back to me. It was like... When she started talking, I'm like, Oh, God. She's going to turn to a werewolf on TV. And then afterwards, after she transforms and she shot, the commentary that is done by characters watching this is so perfect the kid like the kids are like oh my god that lady just turned into a werewolf and they shot her and then they're like it shows it goes to a bar and like one guy's like oh look what they did with those hollywood special effects the other and this like drunk guy is just like no like this lady turned into a werewolf and they shot her on live tv it's just like the guy who's right the guy who's calling it you know is is getting ridiculed by the other guys saying like oh you're just plastered it's like it doesn't mean it's not true yeah this is this is, this is kind of key right here if you want to talk about conspiracies <laughs> exactly it's just like yeah just this is, very, this is very telling those those two separate reactions yeah the uh, kids get it the kids know it's real um and then you have like simply, yeah you, then you have like the cynical adults that are like, nah, it's all Hollywood nonsense. Like that's all make believe. Right. Then you have like the yeah, you have like the drunk guy who you would think would be the unreliable one because he's drunk, but he's you know he call, he's like he's he called it like he saw it. He's like this lady turned into probably, probably why he's drunk. He sees things for the way they are. I, I yeah, I I think that if I was watching drunk, they're both sitting at the bar drunk. Sure. So you know it's almost moot. Yeah. 
No, you're right. It is. It's it's a moot point. You you have you have the believers, and then you have the non-believers, and you have the cynical, and you have the people willing to think, and then you have the and I just think that the, the inclusion of having the innocent children commenting on what they they saw. Uh, Watching the news by themselves in the room, by the way. Oh no, That's not what children do. No, of course not. Another another, another plot gap. <laughs> That's right. Those kids. Those kids would definitely not be watching. You're absolutely right. <laughs> That's the big. That might be the biggest suspension of disbelief you have to have for this movie. That these children are watching the news. There's a lot of them in the howling. There's a lot of them in the howling. Even from the beginning, I'm like, really, really, really. Yeah. I mean, you know, you have to let it go to go along with this once again phantasmagorical dream that Joe Dante has thought up in his head. Yeah. Um. So. We should bring up Kevin McCarthy, who plays the studio, the television program, uh, Poncho. Yes. Um, isn't he? Isn't he from Invasion of the Body Snatchers, the original fifties one? Yes, he's he's. Uh, he had a long career. Yes. That should be, that should be mentioned. Uh, he he plays the sleazy television executive to a T, and I love that he comment like. He comments on his own editorial. He's like, run my editorial. And then, like, he looks to the control room. He's like, that's how a pro does it. <laughs> yeah, right. He's an asshole. Oh, he, he, his head is so far up his own ass, it's ridiculous. This is, that's what, what I kind of think of, like, what a, a small town news, like, executive would be like. Like, the, the guy who kind of, you know, got to run the company and make his own editorials. Like, he, he, he would enjoy this the smell of his own farts. You know, that kind of guy. <laughs> He's just as much of a uh, kind of a bad mouth put down as uh, the guy in the bookstore, too. They both kind of, you know, love um, snarky remarks about other people. Right, yeah. Whereas Dick Miller's just kind of like, like, he's more comic relief. Um, like, if, they're, if the werewolves weren't the antagonist in the movie like he exactly yeah he would be wrap this up i have a question for you andrew i already mentioned there was three novels how many howling movies do you think there are you know what chris i do not know because when i went on uh i think it was imdb to look up the howling i saw endless sequels it seemed like that went on forever and ever so are they still making Howling sequels? <laughs> so so let me comment. There are eight so far. What? <laughs> what? That much of a hit. I mean, it was a huge hit, wasn't it? Like, it made, like, what did you say, $17 million on its opening weekend? Uh, it, made, it made almost just shy of $18 million overall. And I have to do mention that it opened very, like, this was not. A mainstream movie. This was not a big company putting this out. It only opened in 170 theaters and just like in very high population cities. Like this was not something that you could go see anywhere. But it was a huge success. Uh, 1.5 million budget and it grossed at the box office 17.9 million. So you better believe. First weekend. Oh, it's the first weekend. Is that right? On its first weekend? Or? No, that's overall. That's throughout its entire theatrical run. Oh, okay. Still, it only cost one point five to make. Wow. Okay. 
So you... Um, it would be interesting to see. It would be interesting to line up the opening weekends of The Howling, American Werewolf in London, and Wolfen. I know Wolfen was not a big hit compared to the other two, but I wonder which one came first, second, and third. I can answer that. I don't have the exact numbers. Yes, I can. I don't have the exact numbers, but I did look. Uh, an American Werewolf in London had the highest budget and also had the highest gross at the box office. The Howling came in next as far as box office, and Wolfen came in third as far as box office. But it had a Wolfen had. I was gonna say I believe that Wolfen ha- actually had a larger budget than The Howling. I'm gonna, I'm gonna check that right now. But I, but I wonder which came, which opened first, which opened second, and which opened third. Well, I'm gonna edit this, but I'm gonna check right now so we can comment and sound more intelligent than we actually are. So, uh, March 13th, 1981 was the Howling. Yes, Wolfen had a budget of 17 million and ended up grossing 10.6 million. Wow. Okay. Now I, I saw Wolfen over and over again on HBO. They ran, they ran the shit out of it um, when it got to HBO. Howling I didn't see at all until my adult life. American Werewolf in London ran on HBO uh, at night, I think, late at night. And so did Wolfen, but for some reason it seemed like Wolfen was always on. So they were probably trying to recoup in one way or another what they had lost at the box office, whereas American Werewolf didn't have to worry about that as much. Just thoughts. Yeah, and the Howling was like the underdog here, and it yeah, and so and it did pretty well. Of, I'm not sure about Wolfen, so I'm not, I I don't know, but the, the only sequel to American Werewolf in London came out in the '90s, and it was an American Werewolf in Paris, and it was awful, and it was all C- CGI. Yeah, it was all CGI nonsense, and it was terrible, but somehow the Howling now has eight movies with a remake surprise surprise <laughs> scheduled to come out in the future you know that's still in development who knows if that'll actually come to be I'm so mean no 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 no, no. I'm with you I'm tired of it I'm so tired of it <laughs> and I hear the new Dune is good by the way but I still don't know if I'm gonna bother oh I don't know either let's let, let's stick to the <laughs> We've already we talked long. Last, so when was the last sequel? When was the last Howling movie? Uh, I I want to say 2011. What? Yeah, I think so. Okay. Um, my fear for the remake is that it's going to be all CGI. Um, and given yeah. given the director attached, uh, I wouldn't be surprised if it was all CGI because I've seen his name is Andy Mush Muschietti. He did. Um, he's done a couple horror movies, most notably uh, the two recent It remakes, It and It Chapter Two, which is a lot of, okay. which is a lot of CGI, and I I don't want that. I I I've had enough werewolf CGI. I'd much rather stick with the Howling and American Werewolf in London and enjoy, like you said, the creativity on display to to make to make you believe. That this person is turning into a wolf is is just unmatched to me, and I don't want to see. I don't want CGI. I I want to see. I don't want the computer to be creative. I want the individual to be creative. I don't. I don't understand. 
organically now instead of always relying on CGI. I don't get it. Like, why is that the go-to? It, al it almost makes me think that there's a union now that says if you're going to do CG if you're going to do special effects it has to be CGI. Like, it, that's what it feels like. It's like they're tra trapped in this creative straitjacket now where they can't really do much anymore because it's all going to be handed over to uh, computers. I've noticed NASA. NASA has openly admitted that they CGI their stuff. So I just wanted to throw that in. It's everywhere. Yeah. yeah. I've noticed that a lot of big movie studios that are releasing horror movies seem to rely much more on CGI. You kind of have to go for the 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 independent horror filmmakers who still rely on practical effects. They still are out there, and there is an audience. For them, I think it all comes down to money. It's cheaper to do it on a computer. It's easier. It's kind of like... Um... But not necessarily. I mean, George Lucas was doing that stuff, you know, with his, with his creative team. And they were finding ways to do it that wasn't terribly expensive. Now it's a whole different story because it's all like copywritten or, or you know patented or whatever. But I think at the time they were doing it on a pretty low budget. Maybe I'm wrong. Sorry, Jeez. <laughs> I I think we we'll we'll, uh, we'll just put a pin in that because we could have a whole podcast just discussing practical effects versus CGI and and budgets and all that kind of stuff. So belongs. Let's let's wrap it up. So, if you're at all interested and haven't seen The Howling and you've listened to all of this, please go watch The Howling and avoid all the sequels. Although you might be tempted because the subtitle for The Howling Tool is very intriguing. Do you know what this the the little um, subtitle for it is? No, tell me. It's The Howling Tool. Your sister is a werewolf. No way. And it deals way from like a it's like a fifties teen movie. Yeah. My boyfriend, my boyfriend's a vampire. <laughs> yeah. So, so the Howling Two, from what I remember, it's the only sequel that I've actually seen from from this series. But it does deal with the brother of D. Wallace's character finding out that his sister was a werewolf, and it. I don't remember the rest of the movie. The most memorable thing about the movie is that it has a kick-ass song that opens up the movie if you're going to check out anything other than the howling i strongly recommend checking out the howling 2 theme song which is just like a great 80s club rocker that at times is sung from the viewpoint of a werewolf and it's just like a great song it's very catchy a good track <laughs> actually i think i highly recommend people check out the howling it will if you haven't seen it or you haven't seen it in a while, restore your faith in beautiful practical effects and a very unique take on the werewolf trope and avoid the sequels uh, except for the song, which is just killer. Uh, Andrew, any final thoughts on The Howling? Mm, no, pretty much sums it up. I wasn't crazy about it 
personally. I hit the, I like the other two better. I actually haven't seen Wolfen, but since we're at the end of the podcast, I will admit I do like an American Werewolf in London um, better. But uh, the Howling is a close second. I think Joe Dante has gone on to to make some really incredible movies, uh, especially Gremlins, which I'll, I'll always rewatch around Christmas time, and Gremlins to the new batch, which is just batshit crazy, and I love it. But a quick note, I think we should kind of mention. So the Howling was what got Joe Dante the gig to direct Gremlins for Steven Spielberg, and Piranha had got him the gig to do the Howling, and also from the school of Roger Corman, Piranha 2 was famous Terminator and Terminator 2 director James Cameron's first movie. So the the House of Corman has given us a lot of schlock, but also a lot of fun movies and some incredibly gifted people to come out of there. So give Corman a chance, I guess. (laughs) He's had a chance, it looks like. Oh, he's had all the chances in the world. He's going to keep going. For Andrew, my name is Chris. This is the Cult Film Companion Podcast, home of movies on... No, not on. Off, under, and ahead of the cinematic radar. Thank you for joining us, and we'll talk to you again real soon.